0: I think we're in the middle of a massive experiment worldwide. And that is... where's where the guinea pigs? Maybe. The experiment is, will people listen to scientists? Trust the science. Follow the science and follow the evidence. Um, You know, listen to the experts. We follow the science.
1: I trust the science, and I certainly am going to trust those experts.
0: Trust the science and get on with it.
1: I trust the scientists.
0: Follow the science.
1: The science is evolving, the science is moving, and we are following the science each and every day.
0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on the ninth day of August, 2021. And you are tuned into episode 406 of the Corbett Report podcast Trust the Science. Yes, that's right. Trust the science. Follow the science. Believe science. You're not one of those anti-science people, are you? You're not a science denier, are you? Well, good question. Which science, in particular, are you referring to? Which which papers? By which scientists? Because, of course, we know that science is not a singular entity that makes pronouncements on various topics. It is a... Tool, a method for discovering more about the universe and the way that it functions, and that tool works haltingly and imperfectly to hopefully lead us towards greater knowledge in various issues, but not without major stumbles along the way. Of course, you will be familiar with those slight philosophical problems with the injunction to trust the science because we were covering them just a few episodes ago on this very podcast, episode 398 of the Corbett Report podcast on Science Says, where I talked about this in great detail and, in fact, was scrubbed from YouTube for doing so. You might remember that that was the video that initiated the third strike on my main YouTube channel and got that channel. All 600,000 subscribers, 1,700 videos, blah, 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 completely taken down. Well, here we are covering the, the topic again because it is exceptionally, incredibly, foundationally important for the era that we are stepping into, the era in which, through the technological means of control of information, our entire worldview is going to be limited to pronouncements by certain government-approved experts and those within the orbit of the, again, approved fact-checking bodies, and they will become the arbiters of reality which has profound implications, not even just on a general level, but specifically with regards to the issues that we are facing now, issues that really could be an absolutely existential threat to humanity. I cannot stress how important this is. And we're going to get a different window into this story, uh, this general Topic of trusting the science and what that really means by looking at an exceptionally important story that we covered last week in New World Next Week. You might recall that James Evan Pilato and I were discussing the stories that are coming out from The Intercept in the past month or so regarding whistleblowers that have emerged from the EPA talking about the EPA's process for approving certain chemicals and the problems with that approval process. Well, I want to look at those stories in a little bit greater detail today because, as I stressed on New World Next Week last week, this is an incredibly important story with incredibly profound implications for the future of the human species. So let's take a moment to examine it. And here is the first uh, edition of this series on whistleblowers from the EPA called Whistleblowers Exposed Corruption in EPA Chemical Safety Office. The subhead is EPA managers removed information about the risks posed by dozens of chemicals, according to whistleblowers. And this article starts by saying that managers and career staff in the Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention tampered with the assessments of dozens of chemicals to make them appear safer, according to four scientists who work at the agency. The whistleblowers, whose jobs involve identifying the potential harms posed by new chemicals, provided the intercept with detailed evidence of pressure within the agency to minimize or remove evidence of potential adverse effects of the chemicals, including neurological effects, birth defects, and cancer, on several occasions, information about hazards was deleted from agency assessments without informing or seeking the consent of the scientists who authored them. Some of these cases led the EPA to withhold critical information from the public about potentially dangerous chemical exposures. In other cases, the removal of the hazard information or the altering of the scientists' conclusions in reports paved the way for the use of chemicals which otherwise would not have been allowed on the market. I hope you have a sense of how important this story is and its implications, but just to put that on the table, uh, the report goes on to note that the EPA failed to follow the law that oversees chemical regulation, particularly the Toxic Substances Control Act, or TSCA, with uh, one of the um, people on the House Oversight uh, Committee on Oversight and Reform stating On the record to The Intercept, the entire New Chemicals program operates under an atmosphere of fear. Scientists are afraid of retaliation for trying to implement TSCA the, the way Congress intended, and they fear that their actions or inactions at the direction of management are resulting in harm to human health and the environment. I often get asked when people first encounter the fact that I am not a believer in the trust the settled science of global warming, which is on every mainstream media outlet every second of every day trying to warn you about the horrible, icky effects of humans breathing in and out, when I raise my problems, my scientific problems, about that failed, settled science, I am often asked by people who have never heard someone actually proposing in a serious and thoroughgoing way that there are problems with that settled science. Well, what do you think? There's no there's no environmental problems at all? Is that what you're saying, James? Are you just a shill for the big corporations? No, I am saying that the real, the true, the horrors that are being perpetrated on the environment right now, the wash of chemicals that are disrupt, disrupting our endocrine systems and are having carcinogenic effects and are causing birth defects and are causing decline, staggering declines infertility. Uh, is being covered up. That is not being thrust in your face every two seconds as an existential threat to humanity precisely because the corporations have their bread buttered on the side of you not knowing or thinking about that problem. They do have their bread buttered on the side of you believing that carbon dioxide is the existential threat to humanity and all of the impositions and limitations that come along with that. Oh, as well as the hundred trillion dollar carbon markets they are attempting to create out of that problem. So, uh, no, I it is not that I think that there are no environmental problems. It's that I think the environmental problems that the mainstream press is trying to get you to dwell on by telling you to trust the settled science is... Exactly the red herring that they want you to use. They want to use in order to lead you in a certain direction and not get you thinking, let alone questioning the science in other areas. Uh, the main, the the only existential threat to humanity is carbon dioxide. Oh, these chemicals and things. I guess that's a problem. Whatever. It's not in my face. the The mainstream isn't talking about it. Therefore, it can't be that much of a problem. I I beg to differ, and so do these scientists who are raising this alarm bell. And yes, these are scientists, right? Trust the science. As this report goes on to note, the four EPA staff members who hold doctorates in toxicology, chemistry, biochemistry, and medicinal chemistry said that they told colleagues and supervisors within the agency about the interference with their work. Yes, the actual scientists, the degreed, creten- credentialed scientists who have been studying this most of their their lives and do this as their main field of research are the ones raising these alarms. And it's the middle managers, as this report goes on to say, are the ones essentially changing these, uh, these scientists' assessments for the benefit of, hmm, who? I wonder who could be... Who, who could be changing these assessments? Oh, that's right. Of course, siding with the company, where it notes that um, in the case of this one particular whistleblower, he says, uh, he, my manager, basically was siding with the company, shouting at me that the company went apeshit when they saw this document. Irwin, the whistleblower, replied, well, that's the assessment. Irwin didn't make the changes. I actually added extra hazards to it. He said it was also a carcinogen in a, in uh, in addition to the other problems that he was talking about with regard to this particular chemical. Uh, several months after that encounter, the antagonism stopped when Irwin was transferred out of the office. The scientist saw the move as a last resort for his managers. I have three board certifications in toxicology, so it was hard for them to say, William, you're stupid. And so instead, they just kicked me out of the program. Yes, that's right. Yes, no, of course, trust the science. Follow the science. Believe science. Listen to the scientists, guys. Just not that scientist. No, 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 no. Uh, he's crazy. Uh, he has three board certifications in toxicology. Well, I guess we can't call him crazy. Let's just move him somewhere else where he can't actually do his work and thus can't raise the alarms on this particular issue. Trust the science. The science, which apparently is the EPA? The NIAID? The CDC? The WHO? Who is the science? And how does how is that sausage made, actually? Does anyone want to drill into those particular details? Because I think that's pretty important. Anyway, that's that's in a nutshell what this first report is. I will, of course, exhort you to read the a report in its entirety for the full context and all of the details but let's skip over to the second report in this series leaked audio shows pressure to overrule scientists in hair on fire cases talking about cases that are uh past due we have to get these approved quickly so let's just move it along and the leaked audio in question here is audio of one of the managers in this office basically saying, wouldn't it be nice if we had a button that we could push when there, we have eight or nine different scientists who all have different things to say and they all raise different concerns with the chemical? Wouldn't it be great if a manager or someone with a bit of power could come along and just push a button and basically get rid of all those uh, concerns at once and just approve, just green light the chemical all with one stroke? Why do we have to go to each scientist and, and talk with them about their concerns and get that all settled with each and every one?" One of them. No, we should just have a button that we can push. Can you design that button? So that's what the leaked audio in this report is talking about. But let's look at specifically one of the problems that are being raised. And we're going to look at that same whistleblower from the previous report. There are four whistleblowers that the Intercept is reporting on here, but one of them, um, this uh, uh, Irwin, uh, whose first name I can't, find at the moment. Anyway, Erwin, <laughs> uh, who has a doctorate in biochemistry and molecular biology and three board certifications in te- technology, uh, toxicology and has worked at the EPA for 12 years, was asked to greenlight a certain chemical that was under review by the EPA in May of 2020. But he had already found reason to be concerned about the chemical's effects on developing fetuses. Because the manufacturer hadn't submitted any health studies, he had found an analog a structurally similar chemical to help predict its effects. That compound was bisphenol A, or BPA, an additive to plastics that is well known to cause reproductive problems as well as immune and neurological effects. After he refused to sign off on the altered findings, a higher-ranked employee in the division took over the case and used a different, and according to Irwin, scientifically inappropriate approach that allowed the chemical to avoid calculating allow the agency to avoid calculating the developmental risks posed by the chemical. On June 15th, 2020, the agency posted the final risk assessment of the chemical, which minimized risks to the general population and didn't calculate the risks to workers that Irwin had highlighted. So that chemical was approved. It is presumably being used in products right now that are appearing on your store shelves or in your workplace, presumably. Although we can't know because these whistleblowers are not naming the chemicals in question. So at any rate, it has been approved and presumably will, if it hasn't already, ended up somewhere in the supply chain or in the the product chain where you will eventually come into contact with it. And this is how it rolls. So again, a voluminous report, but let's just dwell on the implications of this for a moment. So looking for an analogous chemical to this particular one that was under review, this Irwin whistleblower decided on BPA, bisphenol A, BPA, BPA. Now, Where have I heard of that chemical before?
1: These chemicals are found in virtually every consumer product. Chemicals like bisphenol A make plastics hard and unbreakable. Other chemicals called phthalates make plastics soft and pliable. Chemicals make cosmetics smell fresh and fragrant. They make our fabrics stain resistant and our computers flame resistant. But have we unleashed a monster? Common chemicals are causing profound and permanent damage to growing bodies. And for reasons we are just beginning to understand, some synthetic chemicals are far more damaging to boys. I feel that every child should be able to live up to their innate potential, whatever it may be, but we're taking that away from them. We're taking that away from our kids. Now, why isn't it being publicized? I think it's because it's so scary.
0: Oh, right. That BPA. Yes, that clip is from The Disappearing Mail, a good documentary that I've referred to several times on the podcast over the years, so you may be familiar with it. From my previous coverage of this problem of the chemical crisis that is leading to a fertility crisis that is leading to the underpopulation crisis, a.k.a. demographic winter, specifically episode 339 of the podcast on Meet Paul Ehrlich, pseudoscience charlatan, and my video on Stupid Conspiracy Theorist, Chemicals Aren't Turning the Frogs Gay... And episode 94 of this podcast, You Are Being Sterilized. But for more specifically on the issue of BPA itself, perhaps the best place to turn in the Corbett Report Archive would be to episode 121 on Know Your Toxins, BPA. Suffice it to say, yes, BPA is a chemical that is now widely understood to have uh, properties that lead to adverse health outcomes, shall we say, to use the scientific lingo, and has been a cause of concern for enough years now that BPA-free and don't worry, we don't use bisphenol A anymore have become the catch-alls that companies will use. Oh, well, look, this is BPA-free. There Now, there may be problems with that particular uh, designation because it's not bisphenol-free, it's BPA-free, bisphenol A. There are other bisphenols that could be at play in various plastics, but beyond that, there are other chemicals entirely that may have similar endocrine-disrupting effects as bisphenol A that evade that BPA-free label altogether, as evidenced by what we were just reading in The Intercept with that EPA whistleblower, Irwin, who was talking about the BPA-analogous chemical that has been approved by the EPA and is presumably working its way into the... The supply chain, the product chain of some sort, depending on what chemical it is and what customer specifically was asking for it to be approved. Anyway, we we can't know that. We're not privy to that kind of information. But anyway, um, that is what is at stake here. So yes, believe the science, trust the science, follow the science, listen to science like the EPA science that is approving these BPA analogous chemicals, even though we now know BPA itself is a chemical that we should be very, very careful about. Hmm. The science that these EPA whistleblowers, multiple board certifications in toxicology, people who have been studying this their entire lives, are ringing the alarm bell about, willing to go on record to, uh, on, on the news to say, hey, this is a problem. These people who are risking their entire careers to try to warn the public about it, listen to those scientists or listen to the EPA itself, which, ah, well, that's the government approved body that dictates science and what the science says, right? Once again, this is not some minor issue. This is an issue that goes to a fundamental threat to the human species itself, one that was underlined even in the mainstream media recently by uh the guardian for example not a publication i would turn to for news and information on a regular basis but they did have an interview with dr shanna swan recently most couples may have to use assisted reproduction by 2045 which opens by saying shanna swan is a professor of environmental medicine and public health at mount sinai school of medicine in new york city studying fertility trends in 2017 She documented how average sperm counts among Western men more than halved in the past 40 years. Countdown is her new book, and they ask her, You've spent more than 20 years examining the effects of hormone-disrupting chemicals on reproductive health. Are you now sounding the alarm? To which she replies, I am directly speaking to this hidden problem people don't like to talk about, which is their subfertility or reproductive problems and how that is tied to the environment. People are recognizing we have a reproductive health crisis, but they say it's because of delayed childbearing choice or lifestyle. It can't be chemical. I want people to recognize it can. I'm not saying other factors aren't involved, but I am saying chemicals play a major causal role. And then they ask her specifically, which chemicals are the most worrying for reproductive health and how do they work? She says, Those that can interfere with or mimic the body's sex hormones, such as testosterone and estrogen, because these make reproduction possible. They can make the body think it has enough of a particular hormone and it doesn't need to make any more, so production goes down. Phthalates, used to make plastic soft and flexible, are of paramount concern. They are in everybody, and we are probably primarily exposed through food as we use soft plastic in food manufacture, processing, and packaging. They lower testosterone and so have the strongest influences on the male side, for example diminishing sperm count, though they're bad for women too shown to decrease libido and increase risk of early puberty, premature ovarian failure, miscarriage, and premature birth. Bisphenol A, BPA, used to harden plastic and found in cash register receipts in the lining of some canned food containers, is another. It is estrogen-mimicking, and so is a particularly bad actor on the female side, increasing risks of fertility cha- challenges. But, likewise, it can affect men men occupationally exposed to bpa have shown decreased sperm quality reduced libido and higher rates of erectile dysfunction other chemicals of concern include flame retardants and certain pesticides such as atrazine and they go on to ask how dire is the reproductive crisis you said we are on course for an infertile world by 2045. And she replies, it is serious. If you follow the curve from the 2017 sperm decline meta-analysis, it predicts that by 2045, we will have a median sperm count of zero. It is speculative to to extrapolate, but there is also no evidence that it is tapering off. This means that most couples may have to use assisted reproduction. Okay, once again, please read through the, the entire interview, but... Perhaps more importantly, rather than getting your information filtered through the filter of The Guardian uh, website and newspaper, which I wouldn't recommend, perhaps you can go to the source itself, which you will already know about if you were following my summer reading list, in which I recommended Countdown, How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race.
1: It's hardly a newsflash that human beings often take things for granted. Fertility is no exception, unless people discover they have a problem in this area. As with having access to basic necessities and certain fundamental freedoms, many people take it as a given that they'll be able to have babies when the time is right and help perpetuate the species. All of these assumptions reside under the notion that we don't always appreciate what we've got till it's gone, as folk singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell suggested in her hit song, Big Yellow Taxi. It's difficult enough for a man or a woman, when experiencing reproductive disorders or fertility troubles, to accept that he or she may not be able to have children. Now there's an even greater challenge as human beings collectively are forced to contend with some dismaying biological realities. In Western countries, sperm counts and men's testosterone levels have declined dramatically over the last four decades, as my own research and that of others has found. Also, increasing numbers of girls are experiencing early puberty, and grown women are losing good quality eggs at younger ages than expected they're also suffering more miscarriages. It's no longer business as usual when it comes to human reproduction. Other species are suffering too. There's been a rise of abnormal genitals in wildlife, including unusually small penises in alligators, panthers, and mink, as well as an increase in fish, frogs, birds, and snapping turtles that have both male and female gonads or ambiguous genitalia. At first glance, these issues may seem like bizarre anomalies or cruel tricks from Mother Nature, but they're all signs that something very wrong is happening in our midst. Exactly what that culprit is continues to be hotly debated, but evidence pointing to likely suspects is mounting on a regular basis. This much is clear. The problem isn't that something is inherently wrong with the human body as it has evolved over time. It's that chemicals in our environment and unhealthy lifestyle practices in our modern world are disrupting our hormonal...
0: No, no, no. Stop right there, Dr. Shanna Swan, before you commit any further crime-think. You're not allowed to propound that science. Why not? Um, uh, well, uh, let's turn to the Wheel of Grievance. And we'll find some reason or other why this science is unacceptable in this day and age. Let's give it a spin and we'll take a look. And there's got to be something that's wrong with this. Uh, I have a feeling... Yes, that's right. Racist. If you th- if you dare to talk about the pending human apocalypse, the fertility crisis that is leading to the potential extinction of the human species or at the very least the fact that most couples will need reproductive assistance by 2045, you're a racist. How so? Uh, let's see what we can come up with. Let's turn to Quillette.com, which had this extremely interesting article up from June 16th of 2021, The Sperm Count Culture War, which starts by saying that attempts to make science conform to ideology have enjoyed a long and dispiriting history. And they go through the examples of Galileo with the heresy of thinking that the Earth revolved around the sun and uh, Lysenko, of course, the Soviet Politburo imposing uh, the pseudo-scientific theory of Lysenko on the masses um, because it conformed to scientific socialism as opposed to to, uh, people who were propounding other scientific ideas. And you will remember Lysenkoism from Episode 398, Science Says, because you'll remember Dr. Peter Hotez was invoking Lysenkoism to talk about these damn anti-vaxxers and the threat that they pose on par with nuclear proliferation and international terrorism. Please refresh your memory on that if you forget about the craziness uh, that Dr. Hotez was proposing there. But he failed to realize that the one finger pointing out had several fingers pointing back at him, talking about Lysenkoism and state-imposed science. But this article goes into the heart of this. Um, This article says, The lesson? Just because a religious body issues a decree or an autocratic regime redefines science, it doesn't change reality. Ignoring science in favor of preferred outlook on the world, however well intended, can have devastating consequences. So what does this have to do with the price of tea in China or with the effect of BPA and other phthalates and other chemicals on the human endocrine system? Well, let's take a look it says it talks specifically about sperm count crisis or controversy in which it notes in may a group of feminist academics from harvard and the massachusetts institute of technology waded into the long-standing controversy over declining sperm counts and what if anything this phenomenon pretends for the future of humanity evidence of declining male fertility first emerged in studies dating to the 1970s The decline was found to be particularly acute in the most industrialized West, North America and Europe. This finding touched off a debate that has raged in recent decades over its causes and consequences. Declining sperm count is more than just a medical issue. Falling male sperm concentrations could have profound societal impacts by reducing fertility rates. If the observed trends are accurate, addressing the causes is critical. But determining those causes requires a level of scientific dispassion that is disappearing from science, from social science, from some social science-focused research centers as ideology has crept into science. The latest entry in the sperm count debate comes from a Harvard-MIT research team led by philosophy professors Marion Bulico and Sarah Richardson. They recently published a paper in the journal Human Fertility entitled The Future of Sperm Variability for Understanding Global Sperm Count Trends. They also published an article in Slate summarizing their findings for a lay audience. While the scientific paper is dense and difficult to navigate, the Slate article gets straight to the point with its title, The Doomsday Sperm Theory Embraced by the Far Right. Its subheading elaborates the idea that male fertility is on the decline is an old myth dressed up as science. In which the authors note, for example, the narrative that white Western men are in danger of emasculation and disappearance has deep roots in white nationalist discourse. It is tied to a nostalgic cultural myth of a past in which white men held unchallenged power. <laughs> Conflating science with ideology. The authors of this study, quote unquote, all but ignore the science to focus on what they believe is more important. <coughs> The Ideological Framing of the Issue in Sociocultural Discourse. Their article is a response to what is widely considered to be the most definitive research on science of sperm count decline, a 2017 meta-analysis of worldwide sperm count trends by Haggai Levine, Shanna Swan, and colleagues. The study, which reviewed more than 50 years of research, documented evidence of declining sperm counts in different countries. The authors analyzed 244 estimates between 1973 and 2011 grouped into western countries (US, Canada, Europe, Australia, New Zealand) and other/non-western countries including Asia, Africa, and South America. They found that total sperm count had declined by more than 52% among western men between 1973 and 2011, whereas no significant decline was seen in other countries. And they go on to talk about Boussico's and colleagues' ire being raised by this uh, finding, this scientific fact. They say they argue that the observed decline in Western countries may simply be due to normal variation in sperm count and has no implications for male health or fertility. And they say that uh, neither Busico nor Richardson Uh, Abulico, or Nora Richardson, is a scientist. Both are philosophers who openly proclaim their fealty to feminist scholarship, the focus of the Gender Psy Lab, a cooperative started by Richardson in 2018. GSL focuses its scholarship on the intersectional study of gender in the biomedical and allied sciences, and specializes in analyzing bias and hype in the sciences of sex, gender, and reproduction, and in the intersectional study of race, gender, and... Science. Buzzword, buzzword, and buzzword. Bulico et al. proposed an alternative hypothesis. See, they're scientists. I mean, they're philosophers, but they can do science, right? They propose an alternative hypothesis, not for its intrinsic scientific merit, but because they recoil at the effects on the public discourse unleashed by those pesky scientific findings in the Levine review of a half century of, you know, what's that called? Oh, that's right, data. <laughs> So there's the sperm count decline hypothesis, as proposed, for example, in the Levine Swan et al. uh, meta-analysis. Sperm count is declining and will likely continue to decline in the future at similar rates. Sperm count is an indicator of male health across the lifespan. Both men's and uh, men's health and human male fertility are in peril as average sperm counts decrease. The most likely causes of precipitous sperm count decline among Western populations are endocrine disruptors and other environmental pollutants introduced by industrialization, as well as changes in men's lifestyle in the modern world. As opposed to this, there's the sperm count bio-variability hypothesis proposed by these couple of philosophers. Sperm count varies within a wide range, much of which can be considered non-pathological and species-typical. Above a critical threshold, more is not necessarily an indicator of better health or higher probability of fertility relative to less. Sperm count varies across bodies, ecologies, and time periods. Knowledge about the relationship between individual and population sperm count and life historical and ecological factors is critical to interpreting trends in average sperm counts and their relationships to human health and fertility. See, guys? Nothing to worry about. This is all just a bunch of hype. Well, as this article goes on to state, to the extent that they frame their own hypothesis as an alternative to Levine's, they're making a mistake because their central claim that low sperm counts have no implications for reduced fertility, is simply wrong. In fact, it is incorrect that a low sperm count has no implications for fertility. Above a certain level, 40 million per milliliter, there is no further improvement in fertility. However, when it comes to the lower range, there is a big difference between having a sperm count above 20 million per milliliter and having one below this level. In the former case, the chances of fathering a pregnancy are 65%. In the latter case, 36%. Oh, pesky facts data, science, not that science. In addition, Buliko et et al. barely mentioned that low sperm count is associated with reduced sperm quality. They also fail to note that reduced sperm count is associated with higher mortality. The lower your sperm count, the greater your chances of dying. Although most evident in European countries and Japan, a trend toward an aging population, smaller family size, and a shrinking workforce is discernible wherever prosperity is increasing. Although Bulekel et al. charge Levine with being a prisoner of culturally determined categories, they are so caught up in their own ideological narrative that they feel no obligation to check it against the empirical data. The result is dismaying, you don't say. Expertise does matter. None of the seven authors on the paper has published on male reproductive pathology, but they are deeming to... Uh, to weigh in on the research of people who actually have done that research. And while they indicate that they received input from andrologists, none are named. These consultations clearly did nothing to correct the inadequate picture that the authors paint of male fertility, and many of the papers they cite reach conclusions at odds with their claims. This raises a serious question about how the paper could have passed peer review. So, how did the media cover this tendentious publication addressing a difficult scientific question. Yahoo told its readers, Freaking out about declining sperm count? Don't, Harvard researchers say. The Telegraph announced, Threat of human extinction from falling sperm count greatly exaggerated. Haaretz quipped, Spermageddon in the West? Relax, Harvard has good news for you. And Vox told its readers, Sperm counts are falling. This isn't the reproductive apocalypse yet and then it goes on to note some different uh ways that this these findings were portrayed in other publications and it says it's difficult to explain the deference paid to the Harvard paper by various commentators. Perhaps we are in a time in which even trained scientists are reluctant to call out an uninformed but ideologically fashionable treatment of a high profile issue. Yeah, do you think that may be what's going on here? That people are concerned about their literal careers being on the line? Not just because of the Twitter hate mobs that are ginned up by these people with their ideological axes to grind, but now increasingly because the tech platforms and others will literally just censor you and start calling you a quack and questioning your claims if you go against the prevailing narrative. Are you seeing how this applies to our particular case that we uh, that we are in right now with regards to, of course, the COVID-19 narrative. As we step into the biosecurity state further and further, I hope you realize just how important this general issue is, not just specifically the case of how the real science, the really alarming data on declining human fertility is try- is being shoved to the side in the name of, I don't know, racism or white nationalism or something. Who cares? It's a grievance. Therefore, this science, this data doesn't matter. Relax, guys. It's okay. Crisis averted, because these philosophers say so. Trust the science. Follow the science. No, not that science. This science. The science that is approved by the ideological gatekeepers and the technological gatekeepers and the people who are funding the technological gatekeepers. That is where... All of this goes back to time and time again. So, yes, there is a genuine concern here about how this applies. And as I say, this is not just specifically about this one particular issue. It applies quite broadly in this era. And unfortunately, yes, the very same writers who may be very good on certain topics will probably avoid other topics, whether because they genuinely believe them or because they know which side their bread is buttered on, a point that I made in our coverage of the EPA Intercept articles on New World Next Week last week. If you read this article and you suspect, hmm, this is really, this is good, this is good work, good, interesting, but it's coming from the Intercept and who's the Sharon Lerner who wrote about this? It almost seems like, shes Is she gonna be one of those types who are the EPA and the, uh, yeah, let's blow the whistle and get to the horrible things that are being done in the name of following the science. But is she gonna be on board with the vaccines, do you think? And of course, go to her Twitter. She has this up from June, for example. The vaccine shortage is artificial, but the human cost of that shortage is all too real. Etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Of course, she's all on board. You know, take your damn vaccine, shut up, trust the science, believe Fauci, believe the NIAID. They're perfect and floating on clouds. They can't be impeached. The EPA, now they, that science can be tampered with by industry, but there's no problem with big pharma and the vaccines. Nope, nothing to see there, guys. So we know. We know how this game works, unfortunately, but it's it's good to know. And it's also good to, to keep that in mind when you're reading an article like this. Take what is valuable from articles like these. Do not throw out the baby with the bathwater, but know that, of course, this is going to be from a certain controlled paradigm, and we have to connect those dots ourselves. Now, in the interest of fairness, it is certainly not logically inconsistent. It could be the case that someone like Esher and Lerner, and let's not just single her out, there are many in a similar boat, may have valid and real concerns that they have found about this or that particular science, i.e. process by which scientific data is used to make political decisions. They may have valid concerns about that, and they may have decided that the science that is being used by the NIAID or the NHS or the CDC or the FDA or any other particular body is above board. They may have come to that conclusion after looking at the process and talking to people involved in those organizations, collecting similar data and deciding, no, actually this sausage is made in a way that's beautiful and I want to eat that sausage. This sausage has something in it that I don't want to eat. It could be the case. But it is interesting, is it not, that it is very rare to find anyone even approaching the mainstream media bubble who would have consistent positions of skepticism when it comes to all of these various agencies and the way that they operate to create what we, dis- what we are told is the settled science, the science, as it has now been shortened to. Trust the science, believe the science, by which they are saying, trust the EPA, trust the CDC trust the WHO. That is what is being said when these politicians are operating on the "trust the science" term. So we have to keep that in mind. And yes, unfortunately, it will fall to us outside of that mainstream bubble to fill in the gaps, to connect the dots, to show people that the very same concerns that they may very rightly have about the, sci- the science being done by the EPA, for example, more specifically, the middle managers who are overruling the actual scientists within that organization, may apply to other organizations. And the very same pressures, the very same concerns, like, say, the concern that the corporations that these regulatory bodies are regulating may have captured those regulatory bodies, which we can see clearly in the case that the intercept is laying out with regard to the epa and the chemical companies or the the manufacturing companies that it is regulating supposedly well that exact same regulatory capture process could apply for example say to the fda or to the cdc or to other bodies that are supposedly regulating big pharma is it possible that big pharma that Oh, by the way, Moderna hits record-level profits after having failed to produce a single vaccine in its entire history, now hitting record profits, raking in the billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. Could it be that they may have some incentive to influence the way that the the science is being reported about their product? No, that's crazy conspiracy. No, of course, of course. This is a consideration that applies across the board, wherever the science is being done. And this is a topic that I have talked about many times, actually, in the course of the Corbett Report podcast. You might want to go back to my uh, podcast episode on the crisis of science for more details on that, and then, of course, follow that up with solutions, talking about open science and some of the way that we could address the very real concerns that come out about the biases that are baked into the cake, given the very many different pressures that fall on scientists to produce results along certain lines for, for example, the benefit of their corporate paymasters, although that's not the only bias under in consideration, but it is a particularly strong one. And I wish that this was some airy-fairy philosophical concern that only the eggheads in their ivory towers really had to worry about. But unfortunately, as the science more and more literally dictates whether you can step outside of your own home or what kind of experimental medical interventions you are forced, increasingly forced, or coerced into putting into your body against your will then I hope you understand that the stakes have been raised to the point where this is not some mere philosophical concern. This is the heart of the biosecurity state that we are being steeped in. And one final observation about this matter in particular that we're looking at here today with regards to this EPA whistleblower story and the sperm count culture war and all of this. Isn't it interesting that the settled science, the approved science, the ideologically correct science always seems to come down on the side of uh, 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 one side of this narrative. In particular, those things which act to reduce the population or ultimately to sterilize the human population tend to be good. Any concerns that are raised about the declining human population or what may really be behind that gets shuff, shuffled to the side gets marginalized some way the the wheel of grievances is spun and there's some way that uh the 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 dictators of this narrative find to to brush those problems to the side i find that particularly interesting and i will let you stew in, on that in your own time but i will have more to say about that in the near future in the meantime there are a lot of references uh for in today's uh, a podcast as usual the show notes will of course be at CorbettReport.com slash Trust the Science so go there for the show notes follow those links, read those articles, read uh, Shanna Swan's book, get more up to date on these issues and especially I would commend Countdown Dr Shana Swan's book to your attention because it not only addresses the problem but at the end there is a helpful uh, uh, chapter talking about the different things that you can do to limit your exposures to these various chemicals of concern and hopefully mitigate their effects on your reproductive health. So there is a solutions side to this problem as well that needs to be highlighted. But I hope the significance, the profound importance of this topic in general about trusting the science and what that means in a in an age where the stakes are increasingly being raised and uh, the science is increasingly being dictated at the political slash commercial level what that really means for the future of the human species. This is an important topic. So I hope you'll look into it for yourself. On that note, we're going to leave it here for today. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, inviting you to join me again for future explorations at CorbettReport.com in the near future.